Welcome to this first episode of Lifting the Veil on Mental Health on the CI Proud Podcast Network. I'm Sean Newell, joined by Laura Books on this new podcast here on the WMBD WIZZ uh, webpage. Laura, how are you doing today? Good, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we decided to start this new podcast about mental health, and and there's so many reasons really to do a mental health podcast. I mean, it, it's obviously the easiest thing to kind of go back on when you when you talk about doing uh, doing something where you're talking about people and their and their uh, abilities to cope with um, bad things in the last few years. COVID nineteen, you know, we had a lot of racial issues in the country. We've now got record inflation, high gas prices, a war in Ukraine. I mean, you name it, it's happened in the last three years. And I think um, I think mental health has never been more at the forefront than what it is now. And it's a pleasure to have you on here as well because of your background as a licensed professional counselor. If you want to maybe tell everybody what that what it is that you do, I think that would be a good place to start so people understand your background a little bit. Sure. I uh, work in a private practice in Bloomington. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor. So some people refer to us as therapists. I work with um, children as young as 12 through adults, uh, work with couples, individuals, work with a lot of trauma, a lot of PTSD, depression, anxiety. Really, I'm a professional listener. Well, isn't there isn't there a little bit of a uh, of a difference in how people what people think a counselor or a therapist does compared to what they actually do. I mean, you just mentioned it. You're you're a listener. You you're not going to sit and tell people how to fix every single problem in the world. You're helping them come to those conclusions a lot of the time, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It is a misconception often that someone comes to counseling. This counselor is going to tell me what's wrong with me and how to fix it and what I need to do and what I'm thinking. And when they get here, it's quite opposite. You know, I mentioned that as maybe a magic part of therapy where my job is to really deeply intently listen to, to someone. And the magical part is that's not something that seems to happen a lot in the world today, or maybe in their relationships. We're also, plugged into other things. There's a million things going on to just get someone else's attention and interest in what's going on. I think right there is a whole lot of help or can be a whole lot of help to someone. And then what I do is hopefully help them realize things about themselves or their situation that maybe they knew, but didn't know they knew or parts of themselves that they can discover, that they can find really their own way of healing, whatever that looks like to them. It's interesting you mentioned the electronic side of things, because even before we started recording today, I I said I was struggling a little bit because I have a monitor in front of me and a laptop next to me and a phone and all of this different stuff. And it's like you don't even know what to use to control things. And this is the world people live in now. That's not abnormal by any means to be using all of those electronics. So so the the emotional connection that people try to have has definitely suffered. It's it's a great point that you made in terms of in terms of that. So if somebody comes in for therapy, do you immediately say no electronics? Or if they sit and and start messing with their phone during the middle of a session, do you just do you let that go? Well, it depends, I guess. Um, I don't. Well, I don't. I make very few rules when it comes to counseling. I want people to come as they are and mm-hmm. 
be who they are and feel very free. And if there is phone use in session, I might say, you know, just comment on it, mention it. Let's get curious. I see you've got your phone in your hand. You're often looking at your phone. What's that about? You know, sometimes they don't know. I don't know if people often notice it. I think about how many times I'm out at dinner and I put the phone on the table and then it flashes. And then all of a sudden I'm not in the conversation anymore. I'm checking whatever, you know, pulled up on top. It's very automatic. It's Mm -hmm. that response that we don't realize happens. Everything is important in counseling every, you know, and it's important to be curious about that. And then the curiosity maybe opens the door to some reflection or self-discovery and maybe different choices, changes. How, how um, much different do you find that the, the different issues that people maybe have now as, as opposed to before March of 2020, do you think it's, it's heightened or was it always there and people just are more aware of it now than they used to be? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I think that, I think issues probably aren't changing. You know, some people come to counseling or personally, you know, you have the same problems, but sometimes they're more manageable than others. Sometimes we deal with them better than others. And when you have a huge stressor, like the world went through, those problems then become less manageable, probably in many ways too. And to a point where it would be significant. And then, you know, probably would heighten that drive to seek professional assistance for sure. Yeah. And then possibly new. I don't know. Things get harder when the world gets harder. Coping mechanisms don't work. Getting out and doing the things that you like to do before you can't really do during a lockdown. Right. So what do I do if I can't do the thing that I do to make me feel better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I found an article earlier from yeah. Time Magazine. I need to turn my mic back up a little bit. From uh, from Time Magazine that, that was talking about, it's a recent article, that was talking about people who actually got COVID-19 and had like mm-hmm. long-term health effects from COVID-19. 18% of those people who responded to the survey said that they had seriously considered suicide due to their long-term effect from COVID-19, which wow. is which is an astonishing number. But then yeah. but then you jump around numbers a little bit and this is something that you and I have uh, talked about and one of the reasons to start the podcast is, you know, mental health issues with young people you know, there's that that's a totally new world because they're growing up in a world that people like you and I did not grow up in with all this technology, with COVID-19, yeah. with all of this unrest in the world. Not that there isn't always some unrest in the world, but it's been it's been extreme the last you know few years compared to normal. And, yeah. and they're growing up around all of this. And, and uh, there's this new program that is trying to be started in the Peoria area called the Young Minds Project, which is a facility that Unity Point Health is trying to open that is just dedicated to people that are young to get mental health services because a place like that does not exist in central Illinois. And it's and it's important for um, for that type of a thing to exist. One of the numbers that they brought up in their pitch to try to raise money for this 
is that of people surveyed, 17% of sophomores in high school said that they had seriously considered suicide. Mm-hmm. Huge number, you know, and, yeah. and uh, as you have said before, you know, probably not the actual number because some people maybe didn't respond to the survey. People don't necessarily always tell the truth about stuff like that. But going back to the need for mental health services, I just can't imagine there ever being a time that it was needed more than it is right now. Yeah, all those things considered. And I know just uh, the other day, I had a friend come to me looking for counseling for their child. And there was a six month wait list at the place she was trying to get into. Six months is a long time to wait to see someone potentially. I mean, six months could be too late, I would imagine in some scenarios. Yeah, if you're talking about suicidality and, and struggling with those feelings, yeah. So we have a special guest that we're going to talk to here in just a little bit um, after we take a, take a quick break. But um, if you want to talk a little bit about Jimmy, who, who we've got uh, on the show, and just all of the stuff that Jimmy does, I mean – he is a therapist that's not from this area that has really, really, I, I would say, made his craft very well and came from, you know, some situations to where he was the person who needed the services and now he's helping other people. Yeah, I'm really excited to have gotten Jimmy to come onto the show. He's, I think, amazing person, amazing counselor. Um, he's my friend from school. And I can say personally and professionally, I've grown a lot just from being around him. He's spectacular. You know, we talk a a little bit about that wounded healer. And Jimmy's one of those people who have worked really hard on himself and then has found the capacity to turn it around and use that to help others. And I think that's really evident in how, in what he shares in the podcast Well, we will be talking to Jimmy Tunstall after the break. But first, but first, before we get to Jimmy's interview, do you pay attention to the weather usually, Laura? Is it something that's like important to you and your family to know what it's going to be like outside and all of that kind of stuff? It's I'm often uh, wishing I'd paid more attention to the weather. Okay. Well, it's important too. And and here at WMBD and CIProud.com, we have a really, really awesome weather team led by Chief Meteorologist Chris Yates. And Chris... And Adam Sherwinski and Molly Naisland, who are his uh, his two meteorologists that work for him in the department, have started a podcast. It's kind of like this podcast, but it's been around a lot longer. It's been around for a couple of years now, and it's called Shooting the Breeze with Your Local Weather Authority. And they talk about a lot of cool stuff on it. They just recently did a podcast on the fact that it looks like we've got a little bit of a drought going on across central Illinois. You know, farmers really care about drought, and I think we all care that our lawns don't look weedy and gross. So, you know, that's something to check out. I don't know if you were in this area at the time, but in 2004, there was a giant tornado that hit the hit the village of Roanoke. It knocked mm-hmm. out it knocked out the Parsons plant that was out there and I remember. Really, really really did a lot of damage. They did a whole podcast dedicated to the anniversary of that not too long ago. So they they go all they go current event weather, you know, if a big if a big weather event happens, they will they will do something on that like the drought or if there's a big storm. They did one on I remember last year there was a big flood over in Bloomington that they dedicated mm-hmm. a podcast to, you know, so they, they jump around all over the place, but in all in all, it's, they, they're kind of funny. So 
sometimes when they want to be, <laughs> you know, as funny as meteorologists can be at least. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they have a good time talking about weather and I would totally check it out. You know, it's on any of your favorite podcast apps. It's called shooting the breeze with your local weather authority. So getting that out of the way now, we will turn this over to the interview that we did with, with Jimmy and we will come back right after we get done with that interview. All right, welcome back to this edition of Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. We're now joined by a special guest. Laura, if you want to uh, introduce our guest, that would be great. Go ahead. I would love to. He's a very good friend of mine, Jimmy Hall. He is a clinician at Full Life Counseling and Recovery in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, he specializes in addiction recovery as well as trauma work. Welcome, Jimmy. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. I'm so happy that um, you're with us today. Would it be okay if we start off with you sharing a little bit of your journey, how you've gotten to where you are today in your work and personal life? Sure. (laughs) I'd love to. Um, So let's see. I've been working in this field for about eight years. And I sort of came into um, mental health counseling and addiction work a little bit later in life. I was in my 40s when I, when I made a career shift into this direction. But I'm a person in long-term recovery myself, and I've been sober for quite a while. And, and you know, as I, as I got older and started uh, sort of looking at what I wanted to do with the second part of my life, I'm 54 now, but, um, you know, I was an entertainer for many years. And I had made some decisions to stop being a performer and to stop working in show business. And so, um, you know, uh, recovery and um, people struggling with addiction and mental health issues has always been something that's been near and dear to my heart, um, both for, you know, my, my own personal experience and, and family members, et cetera, friends. And um, I fell into a um, managing a sober living facility and in Winston-Salem and got to know the business a little bit, a little bit through that. And, and as I, as I worked with those folks, I realized I wanted to have more to offer. And so I returned to school and got my master's and um, started working originally just with addiction um, related uh, concerns. And then And then moved more into trauma work as I noticed that once people got sober and stable, there were quite often uh, more times than not underlying issues that have been sort of driving that addiction, Um, often uh, uh, anxiety, depression, trauma, PTSD, other illnesses or co-occurring conditions. And so I wanted to have more um, robust clinical skills to be able to um, to be able to work with those clients once they got stable. And if anything else started to bubble up. So does that, that's a long, no, no, that's great. I I would just, I would just, I would just follow up with that and say, you know, with your, with your own journey, I mean, you, you Mm -hmm. end up, you end up kind of flipping to the other side and being the person that's helping them. How, how much Mm -hmm. did that, how much did that experience that you had end up helping you with the, with the trials and tribulations that people go through with, with um, particularly addiction and, and that, that type of a journey? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, for me, it's, 
is helped with um, empathy and and the ability to really understand what is going on in a person's mind who is struggling, particularly with substances. You know, I think that folks that don't know addiction or don't have addiction, I mean, it's it's like a lot of different different conditions, but unless you've gone through it and experienced it yourself, it's really, really hard to, to understand what it feels like to be in that person's um, position. And so I think for my own self, for my, for my own clinical work, you know, coming of it, I'm, I'm a very client centered person. I, 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 I try to meet the client exactly where they are. And, and I know what it feels like to know that something isn't right and not be able to actually fix it, address it, deal with it in that moment. And so, you know, I think it's, it's uh, impacted the way I can uh, sit with a client in distress when there's not necessarily an easy solution. And, you know, I can offer all the solutions in the world, but if a person isn't, isn't there and ready to shift into that, that, that change uh, place, um, I, I want to be able to, to validate and and be with that client even in that space. So I think so often in mental health, we we have this idea that we are supposed to fix or change or cure or you know have the solution for a person. And sometimes we do have a good solution and sometimes we don't. So I think it's probably helped me have humility and and understand that I don't always know the 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 right answers for someone. My job is to help be with that person and to create a space for that person for them to find those answers for themselves. So following up on that with what you said about, you know, having walked in their shoes, Mm -hmm. probably the worst thing that I think anybody, I mean, just in life in general, not, not through therapy or anything like that is when you're going through something and somebody says, well, why don't you just fix it? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it just seems like, it just seems like, oh, you know, say, say it's, say it's alcohol or say, you know, say you're a smoker and you can't quit smoking or say you you need to lose weight and people will just, just lose weight. You know, when people don't walk in that, I imagine that it's not exactly, that it's not exactly easy to hear when you're on this other side of it is, well, why don't you just fix it? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is that most of the people that I see have heard that a million times. They've heard that from their parents. They've heard that from their friends. They've heard that from their bosses. They've heard that from the church. They've heard that from just pray about it, fix it, just get over it. They've heard that their whole lives. And, and they've heard that, it from themselves. And they've heard themselves. And if that worked, none of us would be having this conversation. None of us would be sitting here, mm-hmm. right? If that worked, if just fix it worked, I wouldn't have a job. Treatment centers wouldn't exist you know, life is hard. And one of the things I tell clients that are sitting in front of me is it's hard living in this body and it's hard living on this planet. And if there was a magic snap of the finger answer, there would be no problems, but that is just not the way the world works. So I don't want to be another person telling somebody to just fix it because they've heard just fix for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. And just Mm -hmm. like Laura said, they've said it to themselves over and over and Jimmy, you touched on a little bit about sometimes we get the drinking under control or you feel you have, but then there's other things that come up. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how trauma work plays into all of that. Yeah. 
that's a, again, that's a great question. And the reason that, like I said, that I, that I really started to specialize and, and focus more on trauma in my graduate work was that I kept seeing it over and over and over. And I sort of experienced it a little bit in my own life. You know, when I got sober about three years into my sobriety, I started noticing some of the old um, experiences that had been driving my addiction, um, primarily anxiety and, you know, uh, stress and anxiety. I started noticing some of that stuff coming back and I wasn't handling it really well. Um, and so I started mindfulness practice and meditation practice to help ease that. And it worked beautifully. And, and you know, I've, like I said, I've done a lot of my own work and I noticed that, you know, when I noticed with clients, the same thing, they would get to a certain point and stabilize and get rid of the substances and, and things started to feel good again. Then at some point, other stuff started bubbling up. And sometimes it was simply sort of garden variety anxiety. And I say simply, it's not garden variety if you're experiencing it, but you know, you're sort of, you're sort of anxiety that, that we can treat with maybe a little bit of Lexapro or a little bit of talk therapy. And, you know, we can manage it that way. But also people were starting to show signs of deeper trauma. And I, and I have a theory, my own theory, I, I don't know if this is collaborated in the literature or not, but that anybody that's dealt with addiction and has lived through addiction has experienced some form of trauma, whether it was a, re, re, whether it was a result of the addiction or prior to the addiction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that deeper visceral response to the world that having a reaction that you feel in your body that doesn't make any sense to you that you feel your heart rate go up your stomach knots your your and 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 your mind is saying i'm fine i got that I'm, I'm sober i'm good everything is going okay i'm going to meetings i'm doing what i need to do to stay sober and internally i'm starting to fall apart and and to me that is usually a result of trauma Mm -hmm. And it might be trauma that we're aware of. It might be something that we know that happened. It might be, um, it might simply be years and years of chronic invalidation mm -hmm. or marginalization or donation or something that has othered the person in a way that has, that has first created very adaptive coping skills that eventually become maladaptive. And for a lot of people, the drugs and alcohol mask all of that. We don't ever notice that. You know, my own anxiety was abated when I was 15, the first time I ever smoked weed and drank. You know, the fact that I was being bullied and experiencing all of this awful life stuff. You know, I had a, some alcohol and weed and I was good to go. And I never had to deal with it until I got sober. <laughs> and then it was like, ta-da, here it is. Here it is. And then I had to process it and deal with it. Well, and that was also a time, I mean, being being your age that you were telling us before we came on the air, you know, and stuff, that's also a time when, when it wasn't looked at as, oh, here's this help you can get. It was just deal with it. Right. And and especially, I think, too, you know, the, the brain isn't fully developed till 25 or 26. So my my starting starting substance use and, and substance and alcohol use at the age of 14, 15 really limited my ability to, you know, process emotions and how to learn how to feel and learn how to um, accept and be with discomfort in my own body when I'm experiencing some sort of 
um, you know, stress response to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think for a lot of people, you know, the drugs and alcohol or, or, you know, whatever, it can be a lot of different behaviors. It can be sex and shopping. And, and, and I, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings on whether I, I don't really think it's in the way that people think that it exists, but I do know that we can pick up all kinds of, <clears throat> excuse me, habits, coping skills, things that, that really sort of numb us from our internal experience that when we put those things down or when we abate those things, that internal experience bubbles up. Then it's like Pandora's box. And once it's opened, I've got to figure out how to process it and, and heal it. And I believe the trauma work is a way to, to get to that deeper healing. You talk about, uh, the drugs and alcohol kind of masking that it feels like the effective coping mechanism, but it's not. And then when you do get sober, all of those, uh, all of those same problems, those feelings, those emotions, that trauma is still there. Mm-hmm. Then what? Great question. Then what? Well, yeah. Then what? And, you know, I think that then what depends on the client and you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the different approaches to trauma. And, you know, some people get to a place in recovery after a year or two and, and things just like, and they know they've had these issues, they've had these experiences in their lives, but they just don't hold a lot of weight for them. They don't have a, they can think about the thing or the trauma or the bullying or the mm-hmm. invalidation. They can think about it and it doesn't really hook them. It doesn't doesn't create any kind of distress. It's a thought. It's just a thought. That is the case for a lot of people. For other people, that is not the case. I, they think about whatever that thing is, and or even if they don't have a conscious thought of it, they have an internal distress response happening sort of all the time. And so again, I would say it's really client-driven. If someone gets to a year or two sober and they're happy, joyous, and free, and life's good, okay, great. I'm, yeah, I'll cheerlead you all the way to the finish line. That's awesome. And if that's not the case, then let's get curious and let's figure out what, what's sort of going on. And, you know, I think that as far as approaches to trauma, there really are top down and bottom up approaches. And I tend to be more of a bottom up type of therapist. I think some people can do cognitive behavioral therapy and there's lots of different ways to do, um, verbal processing and cognitive processing that can alleviate or or, uh, abate most of the symptoms. Sometimes just talking about your problems, talking about your experience in a safe and supportive environment is enough. Mm -hmm. And again, if that's enough, yay, we'll know that. We'll know because you'll start feeling better, right? And if it's not enough, we'll know because you're not feeling better. Mm -hmm. And when it's not enough, yeah. Did you want to jump in? No, finish it. No, finish. I just okay. have a, I have a question, a follow up question. Yeah. What I was going to say, when when it's not enough, when the cognitive work is not enough, to me that means um, that there's trauma that's sort of lodged in the body. Mm-hmm. And we that we know from research and science. Um, if you've not read, the body keeps the score. I strongly, strongly recommend that book, "The Body Keeps Please the look. Score" by Please Bruce Vanderkolk. Um, 
but we know that trauma and even generational intergenerational trauma can be lodged in the body. And so if the cognitive processing of just talk therapy is not touch is not getting to the root, then we want to look at processes like EMDR or brain spotting or somatic experiencing or a process that's going to help us get to that subcortical part of the brain that that deep that deep part of the brain mm-hmm. that we can't really access just through our logic and reason prefrontal cortex you you may do that yeah. go ahead you mentioned the word fixed earlier okay you know the, the it's not necessarily a great word so but the but no, the, it makes my stomach tighten just yes to- yes <laughs> But but the problem I, I wonder sometimes is you you were talking about people being able to come in touch with their emotions and know how they're feeling and all of that stuff. But when you go to therapy, I'm sure that there's some anxiety that comes to say, I'm going to go see a therapist or a counselor because I need help. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's some anxiety that wraps around that as well. How much problems do you have with people maybe saying that they're better than what they are? And how do you see the cues that they're not because they feel like that they should be at a certain place, even if they're not there? Do you, do you understand the question? I'm not sure I asked it very well. So how do I how do I feel that someone's getting better if they tell me they're getting better, but I'm not sure they're getting better? Right. Well, how do you how do you see if somebody's feeling like I need to tell tell my therapist that I am way better, but I don't feel that much better inside? You know, there's going to be people that do that. You know, the pride comes out, you know, all of that kind of stuff to say mm-hmm. I should be further along than what I am, even if you're not feeling all that great. How do you how do you deal with all that? And how do you read those cues to say? you know, to, to work on that. So you don't maybe say, okay, well, yeah, you've crossed the finish line when maybe they haven't crossed the finish line and they're just telling you that they have. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think that, you know, one of the things I tell clients is you're going to get as much out of this as you want to, as you'll put in. And, and I have some clients that I've worked with for a few months and they get to a place where they're, they're, their functioning has improved and their daily lives have improved and they're telling me that they've improved and they're ready to move on. And then I have some clients that I've seen for years that still want supportive, you know, therapeutic um, resources. And, and I think that one of the things that's coming up as you, as you say that is like, I, I don't, I try not to guess my client's experience. You know, I think it's, some stuff is really obvious. If someone's telling me that they're doing well, but they're still shooting heroin every day, I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> you know, let's talk about that. Let's let's define well for you. You know, and but again, I'm not, I'm not the be all end all. The client is. I'm not the one that 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 has to live this client's life. The client does. And so, if someone's telling me if we're getting to a place, and you could kind of sense it. You know, I think with therapy in, in counseling. If we're meeting every week and the last however many weeks we've been meeting, we're sort of talking about the same things and there's nothing really happening, then I'm I'm the first to say it sounds like you've sort of met the goals that we've established in the beginning. You know, how are you feeling? Do you want to set new goals? Do you do you feel like you want to go deeper? Where are you? So I really, again, I, I try not to second guess if a client is telling me that they're doing okay, I'll 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 dig around and poke around a little bit, but you tell you're, you know, you're the one paying me. (laughs) So if you tell me you're, you're at a place where your life is where you want it, 
again, I will cheerlead you all the way. And my door is always open too. I always tell people it's not, it's not uncommon for people to take breaks, you know, because therapy is hard work. So it's not uncommon for people to get to a plateau and feel that they've, you know, they've managed their symptoms, their lives are feeling better, their relationships are going well, occupational is going fine, all that, and, and take a break and then come back a year later. You know, I see that a lot too with addiction is that people stabilize and, and um, sort of just drop away from, from therapy and then come back around year three or four. You know, they, they get through that initial period and then three or four years later, stuff starts bubbling up. So I don't know if that answers your question. It did. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 I steer away from trying to second guess or think mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. what a client needs more than a client knows what they need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, this is, this can be tricky because when it's addiction related and someone's, you know, using heroin, that is lethal and deadly, it, it's really tricky to, 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 to navigate that. And that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that I work with a team of people and I have a good clinical director and I have um, people that I work with that I can process that stuff with and that I can get support because I don't, like I said, I don't always know what the right answer is. And it's really terrifying when I have a client that's walking out of my office and I know their potential that they're going to use heroin tonight. I also know the potential that that could be fatal. Mm -hmm. And so that's a hard, that is the hard, I want to shake my shoulders off. That's one of the Mm -hmm. hard things about being a therapist is that you, you care deeply. I, I, I care deeply about my clients and, when they're making decisions that your, your spidey senses are going, Ooh, this is, you know, this is not a good idea. You know, I'll be very candid with clients and I'll say, I'm concerned. This is, this is worrisome. This is concerning. And, you know, my job is to, my job is to meet you exactly where you are in this moment. And my job is to try and not leave you there if you don't want to stay. So it's that constant balance of leaning in and pulling back mm-hmm. in and pulling back and really checking my own responses because I can experience a visceral response to other people's experiences, especially when it, especially when it mirrors mine, you know, especially when I work with clients whose addiction or history is similar to my own, mm-hmm. it can feel very activating. And that's why I have my own support. <laughs> yeah. I do my own work. That's why I do my own work. Yeah. Is that, I hope that that, does that make any sense to anybody? It absolutely <laughs> does because there's, there's no way you could be in a profession like you're in and leave it at the door every night. There's just, there's, you just can't do it. There's no way. Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, and, and and you and 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 yet at the same time, it's important to have skills and self care strategies and support mm-hmm. so that you can do that to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. You're right. There's no way to do it 100, percent but there are ways to remind myself that you know everybody has their own journey, mm-hmm. and 
you know, one of my favorite quotes from, I think it's John Kabat-Zinn says, we can't change the waves, but we can learn to surf. Mm-hmm. So remembering that I can't stop a client's wave. I can, I can sit with them in the surf. Mm-hmm. I can sit with them and sort of rock back and forth with them and let the waves come and go, but I can't stop it necessarily from happening. It's a great quote too, by the way. We love John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. Well, let's, let's switch back to some treatment. Um, mm. What, what would you, from, I guess, a recovery perspective or, and, or um, finishing up some of that trauma work that you were talking about, you know, what, what's out there? How do I know what to find? What's going to work for me? How do I find a clinician who treats what's going to work for me? There's so many different things, modalities, treatments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the research shows that when we're looking at different treatment modalities, we're looking at DBT or CBT or EMDR or brain spotting or equine therapy, when we're looking at just the modality itself, the research indicates that there is not a whole lot of difference uh, in, in which, what is successful and what's not. So if you compare DBT to CBT to another you know, approach, they all kind of, I mean, they all work. They all sort of say, yeah, this, this is a good approach and they all have really positive outcomes and all of that. I think what is, what is important about if you're looking for a counseling or therapist is that you find someone that you feel safe in the relationship. You know, the research says over and over and over again, that it's the relationship between the client and the counselor that is, that is the healing and most curative factor of, of any of the processes. So that said, I think that when I, when I have people, friends of mine that will call and say, you know, I know, I know you can't see me because I'm your friend, but I'm looking for a counselor, you know, I'll throw out a few recommendations. And I always say, you go interview them. Mm -hmm. You go interview that counselor and find somebody that can answer the questions that you want answered and, 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 and feel that relationship out. You know, I think that there's such a, there's that implied power dynamic that the counselor is the authority and the client is the right. And so for the client to be able to have some autonomy and have some voice and ask for what they need from that counselor. And, and hopefully you find somebody that can say, yes, I can give you what you're looking for, or I can't, and I'll refer you out. So that's one part of it. The other part of it for my own work, I mean, I tend to look at things through several lenses. One is the lens of dialectical behavior therapy, which is a mindfulness-based practice and um, teaches skills in mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. So it's really sort of a, I mean, it's a mix of bottom-up, top-down approach because it really does start with skills. You gotta kind of learn some skills but you can stabilize and then you can do the deeper work, but you got to stabilize first. I don't want to open up somebody's trauma who can't regulate. It's just not safe and it's, it can be re-traumatizing for the client. So um, 
DBT is is sort of one of my go-tos as far as start starting to work with clients. And some people will move through that first phase really quickly. I have some clients that come in and they don't need a whole lot of skills work because they've already got them. They already know how to ground. They already know how to breathe. They already know how to regulate. We can move right into phase two pretty quickly. Phase two of DBT is all about trauma and processing. And I've been uh, trained in brain spotting, which is typically the, the trauma treatment brain spotting is a, is a combination of uh, eye position and sort of somatic experiencing, meaning what is happening in the body. When I bring this situation to mind, what goes on in my body and brain spotting was actually um, de- is, is derived from EMDR and EMDR has been around for a really long time. And EMDR is uh, both of them requ- uh, utilize bilateral stimulation so whether you're using um, sound in the ears that are going back and forth, or you're using buzzers and the hands that, that vibrate back and forth, you, act, you, you, you activate an eye position with, with brain spotting. Sorry, I'm getting the two confused. EMDR typically uses eye movement. So the eyes are going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Whereas with brain spotting, you tend you find on one position and let the eyes rest on that while you're experiencing the bilateral s- stimulation and bringing to mind the trauma that you're working on. So um, what this, you know, the theory around this is that it, it helps to, again, activate that subcortical brain where stuff that's, stuff that's all jumbled up, that's, that's locked together. It could be, you know, all the experience and the, the smells and the sounds and the taste and the, the fears and the cognitive distortions, all of that is sort of bound up in this tight ball. And what brain spotting does and EMDR too, is it helps to loosen and untangle those threads. And it's, I use this example of like, if I have a file cabinet that is stuffed and it's so full that I can't even open up the files, right? It's just crammed full. Brain spotting is a way to sort of gently open up that file cabinet and then sort those files where they need to go. So what, what I find happening with clients that do these processes is that after one or two or three sessions, sometimes it can take more, sometimes less, um, they still have the memory they still might even have some physical experiences around it, but it is not as distressing. It is not as activating. They can think about that thing and talk about that thing and stay within their window of tolerance without going, without going into activation mode or going into dissociation where they're just shutting down. They find that middle ground. And when they can find that middle ground, they can live life with more ease. Does that stay forever or does that have to go through that process more than once to make that stick? Gosh, that is such a great question. And they've done some research. And if you want to look up, um, I think it was hook, you know, when Sandy hook happened, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of counselors, therapists rushed in to, um, to do trauma work with the survivors and they did a study and it, they, um, they brain spotting actually came out at the top of the list of, of all the different modalities that were used brain spotting 
showed the most efficacy. I think EMDR was right up there with it. Um, what they've, what the research shows, and again, depending on who you're asking, you'll get different results. What the research is showing is that with EMDR, a few sessions usually people get get better and and stable stays doesn't usually it does not usually go back it usually stays to the level that they that they that they get to what they're discovering with brain spotting is that not only they've re- they've done research on the people that have experienced it not only does the the not only do the symptoms remit and the improvements stay but they continue to get better over time so you know, again, there is so much theory and so much research. And really what we're talking about right now is neuropsychology, which mm-hmm. if I ever decided to go get my PhD, which I'm not because grad school about killed me. <laughs> if I ever wanted to get my PhD, it would be in neuro, neuropsychology because we're really seeing so much of this is in the brain. And, and one of the things that I really talk to clients about is this is not a you problem. This is a brain problem. Mm-hmm. This is brain stuckness. This isn't. This isn't you. This isn't your ethics, your morals, your values as a human being. This isn't you. Don't have enough willpower. This isn't any of that. This is brain stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, when we can find processes like EMDR, or brain spotting, or somatic experiencing that can help to access that deep subcortical brain that's in the back of the brain that's tied to the brain um, into the spinal cord that goes into the body, you know we can get that stuff working, mm-hmm. everything is going to feel better. Everything is going gonna, is gonna to lighten up. And then mm-hmm. one more thing I want to share about this is I think, I can't remember how many quadrillions of neuroceptors or neurotransmitters there are in the brain, but it's like between one and three quadrillion neurotransmitters in, your so, brain. in the brain. So just a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, to try and for so many situations to think that I can think my way out of that, you know, again, if it works and I know a lot of people that the cognitive processing works beautifully for, it's all they need. They need a safe space to come and land and dump and process Mm -hmm. and get it all out. And that's what they need. And then for others, it's deeper. There's Mm -hmm. been more trauma. There's been generational trauma. There's mm-hmm. been oppression, discrimination, marginalization, socio socioeconomic trauma. Yeah. And so thinking their way out of that is going to be really, 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 really hard, if not impossible. You're all silent. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot to process there. You, you just said it, you, you know, for somebody like me who doesn't know that much about this stuff, that's uh, that's fascinating. So it makes, it makes all of my quadrillion things in my head start thinking all really, those really, really hard. No, I was just thinking about the, the generational thing that you were, uh, that you were talking about and you see that so much, maybe not even mental health wise, but just in the way that life works, you know, that you, you tend to follow the same path as the generation before. And if that's a good path, then that's awesome. But uh-huh. it's in so many cases, especially in more poverty stricken areas and stuff like that. I mean, it just leads to, you know, bad, bad generations beget bad generations and, and so on down the line. And, and it's nice that there, 
other ways to help people break that cycle, be it, you know, because of poverty or be it because of violence in their life or whatever the case might be, that there is actually help out there for them to get to hopefully be able to break that trend in their families. Yeah. And right. And it's again, you know, I think that it's so easy to to conceptualize that through the lens of behaviors, you know, this this generation, this and so this generation this Mm -hmm. and while that is certainly true to some degree there's also cellular intergenerational trauma so they've done research on people that have experienced um you know horrific uh uh horrific experiences in their lives you know slavery and and holocaust victims and you know these things that 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 again sort of you know they say in neuro neuropsychology that what is wired together is fired together and so those experiences that get lodged in a cellular level in a brain actually actually are in the bodies of the next generation they're not just a it's not that i just heard about my relatives experience in uh, in Auschwitz and I, I, there's part of me that has now taken that on physically so if you look at the research around intergenerational trauma it, it it's very clear that you know especially in western culture and in America and what what uh, so many of our you know, brothers and sisters of color have experienced and LGBTQIA and women, you know, that there are, that there are traumas that are passed on generationally that are just in the body. They're just in the body and the brain. Wow. Hmm. That's, 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 that's pretty amazing when you start doing, you start thinking about all of that kind of stuff. And and that means that even somebody who, you know, is, is perhaps, I mean, this is maybe a stretch, but somebody perhaps that is not in a family that they originally came from somebody that's adopted or something, something oh like gosh. that, they're, they're still going to have that and then not be able to figure out where it's coming from because they don't yes. have the backstory. Yes. Yes. And that's another, that's a huge um, demographic of people that are, you know, trying to find services and, and, and deal with, with um, just deal with the impacts of, of adoption and what that like. And, and, you know, that's, I think in a lot of ways, we've sort of just, you know, we've just normalized that like, oh yeah, that's you know, not a big deal, but for the person experiencing it can be a very big sure. deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, I feel like, we could sit and talk for about another hour, but I know you've got to go here in a few minutes. So, so uh, we might have to have you back on on a future episode to, to continue this conversation because this has been, in a word, fascinating to, to hear mm-hmm. all of the stuff that you've shared here today. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you so much. And, and you know, I think that for folks that are looking for, for resource information, um, again, Bruce Vanderkolk's book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and any of his work is, is fantastic. Um, to help really explain uh, trauma. And um, there's a website called brainspotting.com that has lots of information on brain spotting. And David Grand, who is the gentleman that sort of discovered brain spotting and has spearheaded the, the brain spotting movement. 
Um, so there's lots of resources out there. And, you know, again, I just encourage any, anybody that's looking for a therapist or a counselor, any kind of mental health provider, that they that they have the, the courage to ask for what they need and that they have the courage to, to find a provider and interview that provider, you know, because the provider doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but what is really important is that the client feels safe because mm -hmm. most people that experience anxiety, depression, trauma, all of that, addiction, there's something about this world that doesn't feel safe. And so for them to find a safe space to process that, that is absolutely the number one factor when looking for that you're trying to get out. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. And like I said, we're, you're, you're probably going to have to come back on on a future uh, future episode to pick up this conversation because I know what's going to happen is I'm going to listen back to this when I'm editing it. And I'm going to come up with about – and I already have a list of other questions that I wrote down, but I'm probably going to add about 10 more to the list. So, uh, yeah, you're probably going to have to come back at some point. But it was it was awesome having you on here today. Well, it's my pleasure, and I hope that what I said has, has been helpful to somebody somewhere and that it's resonated with, with people. All right. Well, we will leave it there and we will come back and wrap up the show right after this here on Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. What a great interview with Jimmy. I really like how we got from just fix it to how do I meet you where you are and don't leave you if you don't want to stay there. I think that was excellent how Jimmy phrased essentially what we do as therapists in the moment. I thought it was cool because somebody like me who doesn't uh, know all the lingo, I could understand what Jimmy was talking about. He, he seems like a cool dude who gets, gets it on a, uh, on a more easy level so people can understand what's going on. And, and uh, I think uh, most people could probably feel very trusting in him if he's their therapist. Yeah. It's that instant. Mm -hmm. Um, connection um, that is important when you're looking for a counselor. And Jimmy talked about how the research doesn't really show a lot of difference between what works and what doesn't, but the research does show that that relationship with the counselor is the number one thing that can be healing for someone. Yeah. So finding someone you feel you can talk with and um, help you learn to surf is what people find most healing. You know, I, I also find it fascinating and you could probably tell this in the interview, the parts where I was like, wow, I just, you know, want to learn more about that is, is just how much you can really manipulate the brain, you know, to, uh, to make things come out that you don't realize are there, you know, the, the brain spotting that he talked about and, and all of that stuff. I mean, to me, that is, that is some amazing stuff that I'll probably never, never completely understand, but it's cool that people can get the therapy they need with this, this newer, ability to do it that i mean that stuff didn't always exist you know and it's and it's cool that it's there and tools for all of you to use to help people with the top-down approach i think is something people can relate to that jimmy talked about which is your cbt or your talk therapy but this bottom-up approach which is really the new um the new chapter in trauma therapy <clears throat> where 
he kept saying going subcortical, getting into that deep brain, getting into the parts of the brain that logic or not logic, but um, uh, language doesn't really access back where those deep trauma bits are stored and finding a way in which someone can process those feelings, those body sensations, and eventually get to a point where something happened to them. It happened a long time ago and it really stunk, but I no longer feel that in my body when I think about it. And that is incredibly healing and the goal in most trauma therapies. It probably probably takes a while to get there though, right? Yeah. Longer than most people would like, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But but I think some people think you go to therapy for a month and then all of a sudden everything's all better and you move on and it's not really like that. No, but the data around how uh, the sustained longevity um, with the use of brain spotting and EMDR and somatic approaches is very encouraging because knowing, okay, I'm going to go through this, this processing, I'm going to go through this therapy, which is really hard. And I'm going to have to, you know, push myself or go into these dark places about in my, in my mind where I have spent years and years sometimes not going on purpose, but knowing that once these this trauma has been processed, it's no longer going to impact us in that way, I think is helpful and hopeful to people and hopefully help them start seeking out some of these approaches. Very good. Interesting stuff, no doubt about it. And we, once again, thanks, Jimmy, for for coming on the uh, first edition of this podcast. So coming up, Oh, one more thing before we get to what's coming up next week. We had talked about the rate of people with COVID that um, had uh, contemplated suicide in the Young Minds Project, and we talked about suicide there, too. And, you know, it's it's obviously a big part of mental health and stuff, but there is a new resource that you wanted to talk about before we got done with the podcast that people need to know about if they haven't heard about it in the news yet. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline has added a... An easier to remember number, which is 988. It's a great resource for anyone who is experiencing suicide thoughts, feelings, need to talk to someone or feeling in a crisis period. It's 24 seven. It's there for people. You know, we talked about how hard it is to get into counseling, but there is always this option. You can call 988, get to talk to someone right away. Is this the same hotline with a different way to access it, or is this a brand new hotline? It's the same um, National Suicide Prevention line Mm -hmm. that people might or might not be used to, but they've recently added the 988, um, just which I think is very helpful instead of having know all the numbers sure no absolutely no that makes it makes it makes total sense it makes absolute sense to have it's not a new resource no yeah it's a great resource Mm -hmm. and uh i feel very fortunate that we have that and so i hope people people just remember that and remember 988 a lot easier a lot easier to remember i don't know what i can't even tell you what the old number is and i should know it but (laughs) that's how i don't 
it's easy to remember 988. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So coming up next week on Lifting the Veil on Mental Health, going to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, childhood trauma. We're going to talk to a therapist and the CEO of the Center for Prevention of Abuse in Peoria, and they'll talk about their Safe from the Start program and uh, ways that children ages birth to five can get needed therapy for free, which is even better, you know, so some free services to deal with childhood trauma, essentially. That's coming up next week. And in future shows, we're going to talk to people from the Young Minds Project, and we've got a lot of topics on the way. So we appreciate you listening to this first episode. We hope you listen to more episodes of Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. Laura, thank you for uh, participating here in this first episode as well. And uh, look forward to um, episode two coming up here pretty quick. But until then, we'll see you next time here on Lifting the Veil on Mental Health.